Jews. When I was uh, young, I didn't much care for the Winnie the Pooh cartoons. They were kind of boring. I was more uh, Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, Speed Racer, that kind of kid, you know. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate a little more of the nuances of Winnie the Pooh and the wisdom that comes from this, uh, this book and movie. There's this scene in which Piglet and Pooh are walking through the Hundred Acre Wood, and uh, Piglet turns to Pooh and says, Tell me, Pooh, when you wake up each morning, what's the first thing you say to yourself? And Pooh says, well, I say to myself, what's for breakfast? And then Pooh says, Piglet, what do you you say to yourself each morning when you first wake up? And Piglet says, I say to myself, I can't wait to see what exciting thing is going to happen today. And I love that because I think that's the way we as Christians ought to be living. We ought to be on the edge of our seat, standing on our tiptoes, eagerly anticipating, waiting to see what God is going to do next because God is going to do amazing things among us. So sad for me, today we come to the end of our series, Lion Chasers. I've so enjoyed being with you. You guys have been so gracious as Frank has recovered and allowed me these four weeks to share this series with you. It's a series about Benaiah, learning to chase our lions. Now, most of us didn't probably, at least you were, if you were like me, didn't immediately recognize this Old Testament character of Benaiah. I first heard of him. I'm sure I'd read his name in the Bible as I'd read through it in the past, but it never really clicked or registered anything about him. But I really came to understand him and appreciate him when I was going through a dark period in my life. I, I was really questioning uh, my call to ministry, my uh, spirituality. I was questioning it all, and it was some depressing days. And a friend handed me this book and said, you need to read this book. And it was by an author I had never heard of, Mark Batterson, and it was called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And in that book, Batterson talks about how he was a 19-year-old teenager sitting and listening to a sermon, a sermon about this guy he had never heard of called Benaiah. And in that moment of listening to that sermon, God planted a dream in his heart that someday he would write a book about Benaiah. In a pit with a lion on a snowy day was born in the heart of that 19-year-old at that moment. And so we've been talking about Benaiah, a guy that appears uh, multiple times throughout the life of King David and King Solomon, uh, a guy who uh, lived an adventuresome life, obviously, but was kind of a behind-the-scenes man. And there's really no single passage that points out too much about Benaiah except for this passage that we've been looking at from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 20 and following. There was also Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kabzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. And then once, armed with only a club, he killed an imposing or a giant Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors, the three greatest warriors in David's kingdom. He was more honored than the other members of the 30, that elite fighting force of David's, though he's not one of the three. And David made him captain of his bodyguard. 
One of the most uh, uh, esteemed and honored positions a soldier could have, trusted by the king to be the captain of his bodyguard. And if you were here in the last few weeks, we've talked about Benaiah going on from there, and he ended up being the leader of the entire Israelite army under King Solomon. There's even an extra biblical legend comes from Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament that the ancient uh, rabbis wrote, and they talk about Benaiah, that Solomon sent Benaiah to greet Queen Sheba when she came to visit him. And she was so taken aback by Benaiah that uh, she thought she was looking at King Solomon. He just had that regal appearance about him, and she was overwhelmed with him. But he explained, no, you know, I'm taking you here to, to meet the king. But that's the kind of guy he was. He lived an adventuresome life. He lived a life where daily, I think, he was expecting, what amazing thing is God going to do with me today? And so through this series, we've looked at three key things. The Benaiah teaches us, that God teaches us, we want to, to dream big dreams because God has a big dream for our life. So he plants it in our heart. And, and it's our role to live that dream out. But it's going to take risking boldly, living dangerously at times, fighting that lion, chasing it into the pit so that we, as we'll see today, can live victoriously. And I've been so touched by um, the stories you guys have told me this past month, whether it was texting or emailing or conversations that um, you've shared with me about the lions you guys have been chasing. Some of them are temptations you're fighting to overcome with the help of God. Some of them are, are sins that you're turning your back on. Some of them are, are callings that you've been afraid to embrace, but you're willing to fight that lion now. Some of it is, is uh, difficult conversations to have with loved ones, even, even conversations as important as sharing the gospel with someone. So it's, it's exciting to see that we are a congregation that's willing to chase the lion, to, to fight. Even my wife got into it a, a little bit, um, and she's heard, you know, probably everything I have to say and has been there, done that, but she got excited about it. And I don't know whether the Lord gave her this or if she hunted it down and found it, but she shared with me a video uh, about chasing lions. Now, it's a silent video, so you got to read the captions, and it happens pretty quick. So watch this video that my wife shared with me about chasing lions. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's some message she wanted me to get from that. I'm not even sure what to think about that, much less what to say. You know, may, there's just some lions we're not supposed to chase, guys, okay? Just, just remember that. So it's thrilling to think that we are chasing the lions. But today we come to that living victorious passage, that section. And I want us to look at a single verse that captures the heart of living victoriously. And to do that, we're actually going to fast or we're going to backtrack 400 years from the time of Benaiah, um, before he lived 400 years. And we're going to come to the time in which the nation of Israel comes to the border of the promised land just before they enter it. And there is this amazing passage that is said. It's just a single verse that I hope will become your morning ritual. I hope you will memorize this verse and begin to live it filled with excitement and anticipation of what God will do. It's spoken by Joshua. 
It happens actually 40 years after what we talked about last week. You remember last week we saw Israel being uh, uh, delivered from Egyptian slavery and bondage, and then them going to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and receiving the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses, and there's this uh, presence of God on the mountain, thunder and lightning and earthquakes, and the people have seen the power of God through the plagues. They've, they've been delivered. They've seen His deliverance in the wilderness as He's guided them day and night and provided for their needs and protected them throughout the journey. And then they come to the promised land, the edge of the promised land, and, and they, they, they're getting ready to invade with the power of God. And they send out 12 spies, and 10 of them come back terrified, just overwhelmed because there's giants in the land. There's major cities. They've got chariots. They're, they're going to beat us. We, where there's no way we can win. After having seen all that God has done for them, they're filled with fear. And when you're filled with fear, there's no room for faith. And so they, they talk about there's giants in the land so big that it makes us look like grasshoppers compared to them. And so what they're saying in essence is, if we go up against them, all we're going to be is bug goo on the bottom of their shoes, right? Because they're so tremendous. Joshua and Caleb don't see it that way. They see God's hands of deliverance upon them, and they try to convince the people they don't want to have anything to do with it, so they try to stone them. They don't want to hear the good news about the power of God. God gets so frustrated because he's tried time and time again throughout their captivity and throughout the, the wanderings in the wilderness to, to bless them. And they've always been terrified, always lacked faith. And so finally they begin to cry out, Lord, just take us back to Egypt. Let us go back to our bondage. Can you believe that, that that's what they would ask for? And so God says, you, you want to go back? Fine, I'll let you go back. Now, Fortunately, he's gracious enough and doesn't take them all the way back to their Egyptian bondage. But he says, you don't want this promised land that I'm giving you? You don't want the blessings I've got in store for you? Then fine, you just wander. And so for 40 years, they wandered. For 40 years, God waited patiently for a new generation to rise. For 40 years, day in, day out, they told those stories of what could have been, of what should have been, of what might have happened. They told the stories of God's great deliverance to their children. But they also had to tell the stories of their failure. And so 40 years, day in, day out, being reminded of how they lacked the faith necessary to take what God had already promised them. And for 40 years, their children were growing up hearing those stories, hearing the failings of their parents. And so often, like kids do, I'm not going to be like my parents. And they weren't. They trusted God. They heard those stories and they got captivated by what God might do next. And so those 40 years pass. Moses dies. The generation passes away. And God ordains Joshua to be the new leader. And so in Joshua chapter 1, he begins to, to, to bless Joshua and say, Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to walk with you. And so Joshua gets fired up and excited. And so he sends out a couple of spies to the land to check it out. And they cross the Jordan River. And they go to the land and they almost get caught. Unlike the earlier spies, these spies almost get caught. And they, they get terrified. And so the only reason that they survive, of all things, they end up hiding under a hay bale on the roof of a pagan prostitute's house. Of all things. And it turns out that prostitute is more faithful than their ancestors had been. 
And then after hearing the story of what that prostitute tells them, Joshua says this to the people. The passage I hope you'll remember. Oh, no, back up. That one. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord is going to do amazing things among you. And why was it that he believed that and was rallying the forces to it? Because he heard the stories that he had grown up with. He heard the stories of God's deliverance. He had experienced some of them. But then he heard even a pagan prostitute telling the stories of God's great deliverance. Because here's what Rahab said to the spies. Notice that passage. This is what Rahab, Rahab says. I know the Lord has given you this land. This is a pagan who says, I know the Lord has given you this land. She told them, we're all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. The language there, the word there is literally, it's, it's melting. We are melting. It's like the, the wicked witch of the West. I'm melting, I'm melting, you know. And that's what's happening to the Canaanites. They're melting with fear. Everyone in this land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Shion and Og, the two Amorite kings, east of the Jordan, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God, get this, the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens, the heavens above and the earth below. That's coming from the lips of a pagan. She's worshiping and praising God better than the Egyptians had done 40 years earlier. And she's telling stories of what happened 40 years ago. And it's still striking terror into the hearts of the Canaanites. So here's the deal. God delivers us. He saves us. That's, that's the exodus. That's crossing through the Red Sea. That becomes a biblical metaphor for salvation. But he has something more in store for us. He has a promised land for us. He has a life that he wants us to live. He's planted a dream, his dream, within our hearts, and he wants us to fulfill that dream, to pursue it. That's why we have this longing that Solomon says is the eternity in our heart. But we've got to take the land. But we're scared so often to take that land. Because there's giants there. And it terrifies us. But Joshua gets renewed and he calls the people to consecrate themselves. For tomorrow the Lord is going to do something great among you. So notice this, just kind of walk through that passage with me a little bit here. Consecrate yourself. It, it literally means make yourself holy. And I know we kind of like, well, can we do that? Is that possible? But that's what God says through Joshua, to, for the people to do. Consecrate yourself. Make yourself holy. And all holy really means is to separate yourself. Set yourself apart. Be different. Be unique. Stand out. It's a little bit like the difference between your everyday dishes and your china dishes. You know, our everyday dishes, you come to our house, you're going to drink from like a, a fuzzies cup that we've saved and, you know, things like that. There may even be a McDonald's cup in there. You know, that's our everyday dishes. 
But there are some other dishes that we save for special guests, so you'll know whether you're special or not when you come to your house, what you drink out of. (laughs) But we set them aside, right, for special purposes. That's what God says. Prepare yourself. Get ready. Consecrate yourself. And that's what He calls us to do. But then He says, for the Lord will do something amazing. See, our job is to consecrate ourselves. Our job is to get ready. Our job is to live in anticipation of what the Lord will do. And throughout the story of Joshua, the way it's phrased is, I'm give, I have given you this land, or this is the land I'm giving you. It is, it is God doing. It is God delivering them. And it's, it's almost like it's, it's, a, it's a done deal. It's already happened. But yet, the people still have to walk across. They still have to pass through the the Jordan River that's at flood stage. They still have to to take the land. But God says, I'm delivering it to you. And He does it in such a way that He puts us in vulnerable positions sometimes. Because no real general of an army is going to tell their army to go to the heaviest fortified city there is and march around the wall with nothing but trumpets for seven days. Because the people in the town, what are they going to do? They're going to shoot arrows at you. They're going to throw rocks at you. They're going to pour boiling oil on you. But that's what God calls them to do, just to march around the city until the walls fall down. Because he knows that that's an impossible thing to happen. We couldn't do something like that on our own. But God says, consecrate yourself, prepare yourself, because I'm going to do something amazing among you. And he did. He gave them the promised land. And that's exactly what he wants to do with us. He has a promised land for us. And what gave the people uh, encouragement was, was the past victories. Like Benaiah having those battles along the way. He was eventually able to become leader of the Lord's army. We have those battles along the way that prepare us and remind us of God's great deliverance. And there are so many ways in which God has delivered us. You know, when, when um, um, Israel got ready to cross the Jordan, they had to cross the Jordan. It was springtime, so the snows in Mount Hermon were melting, and so the river was flooded. The spring rains had come, so the river was about a mile wide, 12 feet deep, a raging torrent. And they were going to walk across that river. They were going to do it by following uh, the the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden box, gold laid on it. Uh, you know, and 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 inside the box was was the Ten Commandments. Inside the box was Aaron's staff. It was a, a stick he'd cut off of a tree, and you know, it was a dead tree. He carried it around as a walking staff, but it had budded miraculously. And in it was a jar of manna, God's provisions that were there. And on top of it, the lid was where there were these cherubims, these angels. It was said that that was God's throne, God's seat. And so the ark was a reminder of God's past provisions and of his current presence with them. And we have those reminders too. God has called us to a promised land. If we're bold enough and willing to live victoriously and take that land. You know, I think God has got something great in store for Lighthouse. I think God is whispering to us, consecrate yourselves, for I am about to do something amazing among you.
I think God has in store for us some unbelievable times. I remember my, um, my early years here, and we were trying to kick off the men's ministry and get that going. And so one day we had this uh, breakfast out here, a Saturday morning breakfast for the men. And uh, after breakfast, we all came in here, and there was a bunch, a bunch of guys who had come. And Dan Smith was the speaker, and he was standing up here on the floor as we're all sitting right there. And as he's introducing his lesson, he does this, you know, just kind of, you know, icebreaker thing. So raise your hand if you've been here, you know, more than 20 years. And some hands go up. More than, you know, 15, 10 years. And, and he comes down to this window of, a, of about five years. And most of the hands go up at that point. And, and he goes on, but I'm sitting there thinking, what, why, why, why were most hands going up at that window? It was like five to seven years, something like that. What, what happened back then that made most of these people join Lighthouse in that time frame? Well, it turns out that that was the wilderness wanderings of this church. We had sold the property over in Lake Worth. This was being built, and it wasn't completed yet, so we were meeting in places like Boswell School, and so many of you were getting up extra early and doing the mobile church thing and, you know, setting up church and then staying late and, and tearing it down. And it was hard work and it was difficult and it was not easy. But what was amazing is that most of the guys at that meeting had joined the church during that time. Because I think, I think people love a challenge. I think people love it when they see God at work because people want to belong to a group of people where God is doing amazing things among them. And I think God wants to do that among us again. God is still doing amazing things. Just think about this last year. God has blessed this church in some great ways. In fact, we've put together this little video just to remind us of the blessings that we experienced through God this past year. Let's watch.
think that's worth a few uh, claps there. God has a dream for Lighthouse that he's placed in our hearts. I think he's placed in our hearts a dream to reach unchurched people and, unserved and unsaved neighbors, to reach them with amazing grace. And when we share that dream that God has placed in our hearts, God says to us, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow I am going to do amazing things among you. I think God has placed a dream in our hearts to be a place where every person matters, a place where the skeptic, the Christian, the agnostic, the atheist, the black, the Hispanic, the white, the Republican, and the Democrat can come together and know that they really matter to God. And if we're going to be that kind of place, we need to consecrate ourselves because God is getting ready to do some amazing things among us. I think God has placed in us a dream. He has placed within us to be a place where people passionately pursue him so that we make sold out all in Christ followers who will change the world. And so it is time for us as a church to consecrate ourselves and live expectantly because tomorrow the Lord is going to do something amazing among us. The Lord has given us a school within our walls that is filled with amazing teachers and amazing administration who love the Lord and love kids, and they are reaching out to families who may not have a church home, and they are planting the love of God as a seed in the hearts of these young kids that will come to fruition at some day. And so we should consecrate ourselves, for tomorrow the Lord is going to do amazing things among us. He has given us 40 acres here, and he expects us to use that as a blessing to others. We have a soccer field that people have worked hard to develop, and honestly, it's there because of miraculous provisions of finances from God who gave those to us unexpectedly, and we've been able to build that. And so there are literally hundreds and hundreds of kids here and families and parents each weekend during the season. It's an opportunity for us to reach out and share the love of God with them. He's got, we've got the beginnings of a baseball field. We've got the possibility of a basketball field. We've got the possibility of a, a jogging trail around the campus, community gardens, all kinds of things, including an amphitheater and a freedom center. And so it's part of God's dream, and he expects us to consecrate ourselves because tomorrow he is going to do amazing things among us. When God looks at Lighthouse, he whispers to each one of us in our hearts, consecrate yourself, for I want to do something amazing through you. And I know it's easy to be frightened. It's easy to be discouraged. I mean, think about it. Football Sunday, that's kind of goofy, really, if you want to stop and think about it. Dressing up in jerseys and celebrating just because the you know, 300 million people are going to be talking about the Super Bowl, you know, that we would do something like that. Churches don't normally do things like that. There's a giant there, our fear, that says, that's not going to work. People aren't going to come. In fact, I'm probably not even going to come because I'm just going to go to church someplace else. But that's fear. That's us looking at the giants and forgetting what God can really do. I mean, when we come together, yes, it's going to be a wonderful, festive, fantastic atmosphere, but we're still going to have our three services just as usual. There's still going to be praise and worship. There's still going to be a message. It's just going to be a message delivered by NFL football players who happen to be Christian and willing to share their testimony because they chase lions and they live boldly. That's absurd. And you want to know something even more absurd? Come the first week of June, we're going to have a Comic-Con here at Lighthouse. 
Now, I don't know how many of you know what a Comic-Con is, but it's a crazy place. There's a lot of weirdos that go to Comic-Cons. You know it? They do. They dress up as Captain Picard and, you know, Luke Skywalker and all this kind of stuff. But the word is already getting out among the community in that group. People from Dallas are already interested. They're saying, sign me up. I want to be a part of that. It's absurd. It's crazy. It's scary. Who's heard of a church doing that? But that's the feedback we're getting. Wow. A church would do a family-friendly Comic-Con and welcome us in? I'm going to be there. That's a giant that strikes terror in our hearts at times. It's an Egyptian giant. It's a lion too big to, to face at times. But if we consecrate ourselves and we expect the Lord to do great things, He will do great things among us. And it's not just our church either. It's us. As individuals. And so he says, Linda, consecrate yourself. Because I've got a dream for you. I want to do something amazing among you. Richard, I've got something in store for you. Consecrate yourself. Because I am about to do something amazing in you. That's the way God looks at each one of us. When God looks at you, he says, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. I'm going to do something amazing in your life. When God sees you struggling in your marriage and feeling hopeless, he says, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. I'm going to do something great. When you feel overwhelmed by your rising credit card debt and your failing grades in school, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. God says, I'm going to do something amazing among you. When you wonder if you ever will ever find someone to love you like you deserve, or if you look at yourself and you question if you're ever going to be lovable at all, God says, consecrate yourself, for tomorrow I'm going to do something amazing among you. When you feel too old to matter or too young to make a difference, he says, consecrate yourself, for tomorrow I'm going to do something amazing in you. When you feel ashamed by what you see in the mirror, or if your job has you beat down and you feel like a failure, God says, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. I am going to do something amazing in you. When you feel unworthy because you looked at porn last night or popped another illicit pill or drank too many beers or ate too much food, God says, consecrate yourself for I want to do something amazing within you. When you dream your God-given dream, but you retreat in fear because it seems overwhelming. God says, consecrate yourself. I will do something amazing among you. And you know what? If we don't do it, God is patient enough to wait for another generation to come. He doesn't want to. But he will wait till there are those who are more filled with faith than fear who will follow him. Because God is calling us to step out across a flooded, raging Jordan River into the promised land that he has for us. Because you know that's what happened with Joshua in Israel. They gathered their forces on the east side of the Jordan at flood stage. And God said, take that Ark of the Covenant and those priests and line up behind them. 
And I want you to march straight toward that Jordan River. But Lord, it's flooded. I know, just march straight to the river. But Lord, it's raging. I know, just march straight to the river. Okay, Lord, if you say so. And so they begin to march. And what Scripture tells us is that when the soles of the foot of the priest touched the water's edge, the water backed up about a mile upstream. And the rest of it began to run all the way down to the Dead Sea. And suddenly what was in between was dry ground. And the nation of Israel marched across. Forty years later, after their forefathers had marched through the Red Sea, they were marching across the Jordan. God was doing something amazing among them. And so when they all got to the other side and they're cheering and they're celebrating and they're praising God for his great and wondrous, magnificent deliverance, Joshua picks 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and says, now run back into that dry riverbed and pick up some stones and bring them over here. And they do, and they pile up the stones on the west side of the Jordan River in the promised land. And Joshua says, now in the future, when your children pass by here, and they see that pile of stones, and they'll ask, why is that pile of stones there? Because I mean, when you see a pile of stones, that's kind of what you ask, right? Why is that pile of stones there? And that's what he says. When they ask that question, that's when you can tell them, God delivered us. God rescued us. God did an amazing thing among us. And God will do it again. Consecrate yourselves because the Lord wants to do an amazing thing among us and in you and through you. So here's what we're going to do to help you do that. We have some stones up here for you to take, not to pile up, but for you to take. A reminder. A reminder of the things that God has done in your life in the past. A reminder of God's deliverance, of God's great provisions and as a promise that God has something more in store for you. And like Joshua told the nation of Israel as they passed by the stones and people questioned them, what I would ask you to do is not hide this stone away, not put it in a closet, not stick it in your car someplace in the glove box, but to put it out where someone will see it. Put it on your desk at work. Put it on your dash of your car if people are riding in your car often. Put it out on the coffee table at, at your home where someone may see it. And they'll ask you, why do you have a rock in your house? Let me tell you why I have a rock in my house. Because God has done some amazing things among me. And he wants to do them again. And he wants you to be part of that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing together. And as we sing, I'm going to ask you to stand. So go ahead and stand. And as you feel called, if you're willing to consecrate yourself and live in eager expectation that God is going to do something amazing with you, then I ask that you come and you take a stone and remember how great our God is. So let's respond together.